Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Edwin Lee, an emergency physician with 24 years of experience. He's a well-known communicator, writer, and successful columnist, writing about everything from medicine to family, faith to culture, and everything in between. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lee. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you and to get to talk about writing, which is one of my favorite things in the whole world. Indeed, your writing really touches a wide range of audiences that include physicians, health policymakers, but also the general public. And what's really touching about your writing is that it comes from a certain experience being in the field. Uh, You spent so much of your career as a locums physician in the emergency room setting. In many ways, that's like the clinical equivalent of the Wild West. (laughs) Describe what that experience is like and why you choose to include locums in your career. So when I finished residency, I, start, I worked in one hospital with one fee-for-service group for 20 years. And towards the end of that, I just really needed a change of pace. I was not enjoying my work anymore for a variety of reasons. And my wife and I talked about it. And we thought about doing some things like going overseas and other things. But we decided just I would do some locums because it gave me enormous freedom, Right. I could do what I wanted, whatever I wanted. I could work as I wanted. And, uh, and that was great. And so we could take vacations in whatever manner we liked because I didn't have to work if I didn't want to. So that was, it was really wonderful. And what I did at that time was I really focused on critical access hospitals, small hospitals in the Southeast mostly, and also in Indiana, Illinois, and even as far away as Colorado. Wow. And these places were facilities that had sometimes 10,000 visits a year, sometimes 5,000 visits a year or less. I remember working in a place in Colorado, in, in uh, Kremlin, Colorado. And one night I saw, or one shift, I saw four patients in 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and that had been so unlike my prior experience of medicine. And then that wasn't all the time, but it certainly was a nice change of pace. But for you to say it was like the frontier of the Wild West, it really was. And you, it really gave me a chance to be out there alone prove I could do it, use my skills, take those skills to places that frequently struggled to find really well-trained physicians. So the thing about locums is when you're out there, you're typically sole coverage, at least in the critical access hospitals, you're sole coverage in a hospital that has no one else in house at night. There's no family medicine doctor, there's no hospitalist, there's no anesthesiologist, there's nothing. So whatever comes to the door is really yours to stabilize and transfer if need be. Wow. That was a real interesting eye-opening event. And I remember one time I was working in Kentucky and I was reminded why this was important. So small hospital in Kentucky, 5,000 visits a year, almost nothing out there. And I had a patient need to be intubated. And so we did a rapid sequence intubation, paralyzed the patient, intubated him. And from the time the drugs were pushed to the time it was probably one and a half minutes as it should be. And the nurses looked at me and said, so that's what that's supposed to look like. Wow. And I thought that was really telling. Because there are lots of wonderful locums doctors, and there's some who aren't as good. And we we all know that. And so to be able to take those skills I've acquired over the years through training and practice and take it to places like that was a real rewarding experience. And it showed me a lot of what what it's like in America in places that don't have a lot of health care, that certainly don't have a lot of access to emergency health care. Uh, I used to work in a small hospital not far from where I live up in the mountains of North Carolina. And it's funny you would talk about the frontier because I was going up there one one time to work a 24-hour shift. 
and it was about to start snowing and I had my truck and I had a blanket in my truck and I had a first aid kit and some food and things like that. I was going up the mountains to a few thousand feet. I knew that whatever happened there was not going to get flown out because of the snow. And I was going across some rivers I knew and driving through the weather. It was very rewarding to me. I like that feeling of being out there. A lot of my life, I've grown up on stories of frontier heroes, Eastern frontier. And I love reading about that and being out there alone with no one else on the road, knowing that people would depend on me, lives would depend on me. That was a great feeling. I love that feeling. Yeah, I could certainly imagine how that perspective would give you a unique enjoyment in your career. And I think another real benefit of all those unique experiences in the ER world is your perspective gleaned in writing. And much of your writing appears as a series of articles, for example, in Emergency Medicine News or Kevin MD. You've taken a unique approach in not just writing one-off articles, but you write a series of articles. For example, and again, everything will be listed on the podcast website. Sure. For Emergency Medicine News, you've written Life in Emergistan. You have a series of articles also in Kevin MD. Why do you take that approach as a writer? Why have multiple articles that kind of have a certain theme underlying it, but are unique in their own right? I think it's because there's just so many things to say, right? There's a lot of material to cover here. So life in the job that I do presents me with so many stories every day. And there's so many comments I want to make about it. And maybe it's just because I can't stop running my mouth. My dad always said I was an agitator. And, and maybe that's true. But started, that is a good thing. It's a good thing. And in fact, I started college as a journalism major, oddly enough, and didn't stay with it, but it circled back around. I always loved writing. And so those articles give me a chance to address things for the readers that, that, that enjoy hearing them and need to hear them. So I think one of the things I do is, particularly in places where I'm writing to physicians, is I have the opportunity to speak what others can't. Mm. And, and I, have, I wish I could tell you how many times people have written to me or come up to me at conferences or things and said, hey, listen, I read that article you wrote about X, Y, Z, and I really want to thank you because if I say that, I'll probably lose my job. So I can't say it, but you can. So thank you for that. Wow. I think that helps lighten the load of the people that I work with as a, well, as a, my colleagues across the country, not just personally. It allows me to identify problems. I can speak about, or it is, whether it's access to rural care, as I've been writing about lately, or I used to write about the pain scale or the customer satisfaction scores, all these things. I've been able to get away with this, and many people couldn't. And I know, I feel reasonably sure that if I were an academician, I couldn't get away with that. Mm -hmm. uh, I've given talk, a talk, I gave a talk one time to a group of academicians, and I said, do you all know people who have been fired from their clinical positions because of opinions they held or things they said? And all they all raised hands. Absolutely, we know that. Yeah. Not because they were bad physicians, but because their opinions were uh, were not in, in concert with the prevailing opinion. All right. And we've seen that in the last few years across the country. It's a terrible thing. We should give light and space to ideas. There are bad ideas that will die on their own. But when physicians say to me, I think the pain skill is a mistake, or I think that my metrics are wearing me out and burning us out and I can't do it, that needs to be said. Yeah. And I've been able to do that. And once or twice, I was applying for a job and someone said, we need you to sign this clause that says, you'll let us review whatever you wrote. And I just struck through it and said, no, I'm not doing that. Not. And, and so far it worked out. It worked out, huh? Yeah. One of the jobs I just didn't bother to take, but I've never, I've, I, I promise if someone says it to me, I'll just say no, I don't need that in my life. Wow. They're not qualified to judge my writing. That's how I feel about it. Um, 
But I like I, that approach. I really do. You describe yourself as an agitator. In many ways, you're an independent thinker and in that you have a certain level of courage in your words that empowers those who read it. And I think that's a gift. It's almost a blessing in many ways. You have a Substack page in which you write free form, you write lists, providing clinical advice, you share stories. What do you try to get out of your Substack page that you may not be able to do with more structured writing outlets like emergency medicine news? Substack is almost like the frontier also. It is. And if you much about Substack, as I'm sure you do, there are plenty of writers who have left big positions in big papers and written for Substack. Yeah. Barry Weiss comes to mind, um, who just felt too constrained by the New York Times. And she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write what I want in the place I want. And her Substack column is enormous, has enormous following. And I think that Substack provides the opportunity to, it, it's very free in terms of free speech content, but it's also very liberating because you can you can experiment with different things. Now, yeah. I will say, when I've written for EM News or for MedPage or even KevinMD, they, my editors have always given me liber, literary freedom to do things in a unique way. I've written poems and stories and lists and all sorts of things. And so I'm grateful for that. And so I really just have transmitted that over to Substack. The thing with Substack is there's no editorial lead time. So I can say what I want to say. If something happens to me today and occurs to me, I can have it on Substack tonight. It's that yeah. easy. And I, and I think it's great. And so for me, it's a good place to experiment, to reach out to unique groups, because I have followers now who are physicians and followers who are nurses and followers who are no way connected to the medical field. That's a wonderful thing because it brings them all in. And I won't always write about medicine. I'll write about other things and we'll see how that goes. And sometimes it gets purchased and sometimes it doesn't. And that's okay because not everything that we write as writers is going to be loved by a million people. That's totally fine. When you think about ancient writers that we still follow in their lifetime. How many hundreds of people read what they wrote? Very few, perhaps. Exactly. It's still relevant. It's still relevant. Uh, that, that, that's well said. The art of writing is a right unto is a art unto itself. Let's explore that a little bit because you writing for you is very unique, and it's clear in your words that there's a certain passion. What does writing do for you in general? We talk about the art and science of medicine. We discuss it mostly in platitudes while writing our medical school applications, and then we forget about it. But for you, in your words, it means something. It's real to you. Talk about the outlet of expression that is writing. I think that writing, in a very real way, is just a way of learning to think better. So when I have an idea and I can sit down and flesh it out, it allows me clarity on that idea, right? So my thoughts are going all over the place. And particularly when I'm working, there's a lot of chaos in my job. And this idea will occur to me. And I'll, I purposefully revisit that idea in my head all day long for a couple of weeks. And I'll hold on to it. And I'll wake up in the morning and say, now, what was that thing? Oh, yeah. Let me think about that again. And I'll go through it. But though, So then when I have the opportunity to come back and put it on paper, yeah. it helps clarify that. It helps solidify that. It, give, it gives it a little more a skeleton and, and then muscles and then skin so I can make that idea into something and once I can do that, then I can convey that to someone else it, or not. If it, it may just be, I need to write it. So I understand it. I've written plenty of things I haven't published, but that writing act gives it substance and then gives it power because it has substance. Right. Yeah. And so it allows me to write and not just for me, but for, I write for my wife and children. I write, I write for my grandchildren and my great grandchildren, because I think what if they had something I'd written in 200 years or 500 years or 1,000 years. Wouldn't that be cool if you had that from your ancestors? That so is I've, really cool. I've done this for years. I've kept notebooks of things my kids said and things we did as a family. 
because I want that to be there for them. And so that writing is also a legacy. It's a, it helps, so it helps me cope. It helps me not to be burnt out. It helps me to get my frustrations out. It helps me to clarify ideas. It helps me to encourage. And it helps me to humanize medicine, I think, uh, and to learn to hear and see stories in patients and staff and see them as stories in their own. In their own. So there is a multifactorial benefit to the writing I do as a physician, but also just as a human being. I like that because, as you had mentioned, it's a way of thinking. It can complement your skills as a clinician. It can also, in many ways, come across as slightly different, but making you a better thinker overall. We talked about this before. Emergency medicine is a fast-paced field. Writing is a deliberate process. Talk about the process of thinking in the clinical world and in the writing world and how the two combine to make you a stronger thinker. Yeah, I think you could almost look at emergency medicine. It's kind of like flash fiction, right? Yeah, <laughs> nice. It's your, your, you go into a room. Yeah, I remember in residency, uh, our residency director in Indianapolis was Kerry Chisholm. Rest in peace. He passed away uh, about a year ago, unfortunately. But Kerry used to tell us that as physicians, emergency physicians, we shouldn't be in a room for more than three to five minutes. And, and for many physicians, that sounds horrifying, but it's just reality. We don't have time to spend a long time. And so... When I go into a room, I have to assess the room. So, you know, I have to assess the reader, you might call them, or the, or the story, as it were. And I have to understand what they're trying to say to me. And I have to try to figure out the subtext and the background, if I have records, and put all that together into some sort of cogent narrative that helps me, again, think. So when I go to the computer and write it down, it helps me to think what I need to do next and helps me to think about what is going on with them, to put together a diagnostic picture and then make a plan. So that, that story, and I think, I think each patient is a short story. Like emergency medicine is a series of short stories. Not many novels, but lots of dis sometimes connected, frequently not connected, short stories where each person has this event that's happened to them. And they may, that may happen over and over again with the same people, but it's not a long time. So when I do that sort of writing, allows me to learn, I have to work through subplot, subtext, dialogue, pathos, all these things in that short period of time and then translate that into something actionable, or at least in some way that can reassure them or give them some encouragement or hope, right? That's interesting because you talk about in metaphors, how the clinical world impacts your writing and the writing structure itself. So naturally you, one would say, you probably get ideas to write while practicing. So do you, how does a day-to-day -day clinical experience of seeing patients then translate into the narratives that you create. It helps with the writing structure, but talk a little bit about the writing substance. So when I'm at work, many times during the day, I'll walk out of a room and have this idea, this thought about an interaction. For instance, it just has an idea. Many times I see people with dementia and I might walk out of the room and think, I wonder if deep inside there is some clarity of thought that she's having and what that would look like, or I wonder what thoughts torment them in their dementia and that we can't access, that we can't help them with. So I might go out of the room and I might, I want to hold on to that. So, so I have notebooks in my bag. I don't always pull them out. Typically my go-to is to go to the copier and pull out two pieces of copy paper, fold them over in half, and I'll write notes all day long on that piece of paper. Nice. And then at the end of the shift, I stuff them in my backpack and Sometimes they make it to a notebook or the computer. Frequently, I'll go back and I have files on my computer and I'll take those notes down and, and I'll just plant that for later. I'll give it up to script and 
enough descriptors so that in, in another month, if I want to write something, I'll say, what can I write about today? What's a good quality of new? I go, oh, here's my list. And that, I remember that. That was a good story. That was a good idea. I need, to, I need to flesh that out. So that's what it looks like. So every day, whether it's an interaction with a patient, an interaction with a staff member, a frustration with the system, anything like that, those things um, show up to me as little vignettes that, that I then record and revisit. So it's actually really fun because we have so many opportunities for that because it's just, there's always new stimuli. There's always new events to the extent that I have worried if, that when I retire someday, I will, it'll be hard for me to write. I don't think that's true, but that's this anxiety in my writer's head. Oh my gosh, what will I write about when I'm not immersed in chaos every day? Yeah. That's interesting because the chaos of clinical medicine is almost an immersive experience. You're in the moment, you see the writing, the words come out through the care you provide. But I got to imagine that there's also a certain level of bias that can seep in as well, that upon reflection and writing, you may say, hey, this makes sense, or maybe I was in the moment too much, that situation. Do you ever find yourself when you're writing about a clinical experience that you go through that experience differently as you're looking back and writing? I do sometimes at the end of the day, I'll say to myself, I was very upset about this thing. And clearly I need to dial it back and realize why I was upset. And when I was younger, this was not uncommon. I would see people who were say addicted or to drugs or alcoholics or whatever. And I would often get really angry because I grew up in a very sort of drug alcohol free environment. I grew up a little judgy. And over the years, I've started to understand a lot more about that. So I've, I've come to realize I, I have a different way of looking at those people now. I look at those people as captives or as wounded people. It doesn't mean they can't do wrong things that we have to address. But so often, you just don't understand their backstory. You don't understand the wounds that they carry, the remorses they're trying to cover up. People are trying to, people are trying to change their lives or anesthetize themselves. And even the suicidal, if you think about it, they're trying to escape. They're trying to, to die to a terrible thing in their life. And, and we hope that we can give them some nod to, but that's what's making an attempt to erase something bad. And so over the years, I've learned to look back at, I think, my angers and frustrations that way. And also with clinicians. Gosh, we all have arguments with physicians. Oh, yeah. yeah, sometimes physicians are awful to deal with. And, and I've come to understand that generally the physicians I meet who are most toxic are just unhappy. And so over the years, I've learned those things. It does take some self-reflection, some humility, I think. Yeah. Now, developing that awareness is part of the strength of a writer, which kind of builds word by word, article over article. And I think that a lot of your writing exemplifies that process. You use narrative to describe experiences, but in many of your writings and particularly one in the Medscape article, which is going to be linked on the webpage as well, you use experience to advocate for policy. And it's a unique position to be in because anecdotes matter. But at the end of the day, they're also anecdotal evidence only. How do you judge or how do you balance the power of a narrative with the strength of data? I will say that I am probably far better with narrative than data. And I know my niche, right? I know my place right. in, in the ecosystem. I have friends who are phenomenal advocates and policy people, right? And sometimes I connect with them. I like to think of my position as being the scout, right? I bring the stories back and I let people see those things so they can then do with it what they want. I'm busy practicing. I'm seeing patients. I'm not in Washington. I'm not on a lot of committees. 
But I do try to bring these ideas up so that policymakers can look at them. And I have my own ideas. I have a whole series of ideas about rural care that I hope to put into print in the near future. But I think what matters for what I do, since I'm not really a data guy, is to A, tell the vignette or the story, the scenario, but humanize it, right? Mm -hmm. Make that story real. I need to explain to people why, for instance, when we have no beds in the country to put sick people in, that means human suffering. That means people who can't get care die. And that's important because a policymaker or a data person can tell the data and the policy, but that they may not convey that part. If you talk about merely about mortality rates without thinking of faces, it doesn't have the same impact. Both are important, right? Both are important. And what I also try to do is make sure that what I'm saying is, if not supported exactly by numbers, certainly by corroborative evidence, right? Yeah. So when I say we're overwhelmed right now because we have no beds, that's my colleagues around the country, when I say that, then they say, absolutely, thank you for saying that. We're crushed right now. So I know I'm not making this up. I know this is not just me. It's not one off. It's not Ed Leap in West Virginia making up a story. It, people in Arizona have the same experience, in Washington, the same experience, in Florida, in Michigan. It's all the same thing. So when I throw these vignettes out there, it, they gain support by the weight of people in some ways responding and agree. So that's a sort of a kind of weight, a kind of case series, as it were, maybe. Yeah. It's not just it's not just single case scenarios. It's not just anecdotal levels. Yeah. Uh, it's a power, it's the power of shared experiences. I think you do a great job within your writing. Right. You know, what's interesting about writers and in many ways encapsulates your writing career is that they're truly independent thinkers. They have independent careers, think independently, almost in that Kurt Vonnegut type mold. Yeah. Do you envision your career in that similar vein as the lone independent thinker, that voice of contrarian wisdom? I, I do. I think that's how it's always been. I suspect that's how it's always going to be. Yeah. And I'm at peace with that. That's the that's the place I've carved out for myself. And I would be sad if it stopped. And I do have to think about what I want in terms of my job and my clinically and how it will reflect on that. I can't stop doing this. Yeah. I think it would be wrong to stop doing it. Will it change face? Will it look differently? Maybe. Uh, maybe depending on where I practice and what I'm doing, it will change in terms of the advocacy or the stories I'm telling. But I have to be that lone guy out there. Uh, and I've always been like that. I've always been the kid who wandered off in the woods by himself. When I was a kid, I would spend hours in the woods by myself. Yeah. And that was okay. And I'm still like that. And there's power in solitude and there's a need for more independent voices in medicine. So by all means, I think what you're contributing to is more than worth its weight in value. But what's interesting is like for people like yourself and for me at a much lower level, writing provides both a personal outlet and a means for advocating for change. But clearly not all of medicine, as you alluded to, agrees with thinking in this vein. But so the question then becomes, should writing as physicians remain an independent pursuit subject to the individual interest, or should there be some level of integration? Meaning, should we have some means of standardizing it at some level, whether it's in medical education, some level of just personal journal writing to avoid burnout, or something where it's at least encouraged at a systemic level? I think you can offer that to people. I don't know that it needs to be I think if you control it from a top-down level, I think that doesn't make good writing because I think just of the very nature of how writers are. And also it begs the question, when you do that, then who's in charge of it? And how do we trust them to say what's good and what's bad? 
Yeah. Yeah. The best thing is to throw it out there. And again, good ideas get purchased and bad ideas get ignored or they just die and fine. That's how it's always been. That's always been like that. And Hemingway he has a book called uh, was a, On Writing, maybe that was his writing, what it was called. It was a long series of books on, of, of quotes on writing. And he says, the problem with American writers is that they began to trust the critics when they said they were good. Yeah. And they trusted the critics when they said they were bad. Yeah. And he said, in the end, you shouldn't because your writing will get better over time if you just keep at it. And I think there's truth to that. So if you have, imagine, so that's the thing about physicians, right? We tend to be educated in a sort of mechanistic scientific manner. Yeah. So imagine a body of mechanistic scientific physicians with an interest in writing who then are in charge of saying who shall write in what way. That's a bad idea. But what we should do is give physicians who are interested the encouragement, the mentoring, the opportunity to do it. I think it's therapeutic to write. I would encourage journaling. I have met physicians who are also very bad writers, and I think we can help them. Uh, but we should also work to make physicians better communicators, and that's important whether it's in your chart or just in your journaling or in for your local newspaper. The best thing I think would be for us to, who, those of us who have done it, to be willing to service mentors for upcoming generations of physicians who want to do that. Yeah. And I would be delighted to do that. And in fact, I try to do that. When someone comes to me and says, I want to write, what should I do? I give them kind of ideas and suggestions on ways to start. For instance, Substack's a great place to start because you really can't get hurt there. You can get ignored, but you can't get hurt there like you could say on Twitter or someplace like that. Yeah. So I think probably top-down is bad, but I think encouraging it from a lower level and so it's more organic for physician writers is a very good thing. Physician writers tend to want to write, particularly young physician writers, tend to want to write war stories and the sort of gore of their lives and the technical stuff. And that's important. We have to do it in a way that's winsome and that people want to read. It can't just be mere fleshing out technical events. That's, that becomes mundane after a while, I think. No, I certainly agree that recognizing the journalistic format the narrative of writing is a key facet that a lot of physician writers, though skilled in technical writing, may not really understand. If you had to maybe go back and look at one or two moments in your career where you felt accepted as a writer, what would those moments be? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I, my first real effort as a writer professionally was with the Greenville News, a, a Gannett mm. News. In South Carolina. And I started writing for them in 95 because I just sent an article out to the editor and he liked it. And I sent one more and he said, Hey, you want a regular column? Nice. So that sort of took off. And about 10 years into that, I really felt that there's not one moment, but I knew the weight of my readership was really good and that people in the community liked it. And they would write to me when they would comment, they would tell me it meant something to them. I, that was important to me. And then of course, when there are a couple of columns, a couple of things I've written, the, the column on the, the golden rule revisited that you know, when that's gone out and gone to medical schools and gone to civic organizations and advocacy groups for the disabled, that, that sort of thing, when you know that's reaching people and you know that they're touched by it and they're, re and they're reposting it because they want that idea to get out, that idea means something, then you're accepted as a writer, I think, because your idea is living on. You mentioned Kurt Vonnegut, and one of the things Kurt Vonnegut said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to misquote him in some way here. He said, you may never make a lot of money as a writer. But one thing you'll get, and that's it's this, someone will walk up to you one day and say, I thought I was the only one that thought that. Yeah. And I think that when you get to that place as a writer, and that has happened to me in so many places, whether it's uh, whatever the venue, whatever the publication, when you get to that, then I think you've arrived at a place where you have, your, you have a voice and your voice means something. And then things happen like a couple, during COVID, I had a, 
was contacted because of a friend from the, by the Atlantic and had a couple articles in the Atlantic about the pandemic, then you know that, that sort of your voice is not only reaching just your circle, but reaching beyond that. And that's really interesting when that happens. When you when that happens, you start to get other publications, other editors, and then it gets shared. And you, it, people are talking about it. You've, you've stimulated a conversation, right? Yeah. Those are moments when you say, my ideas matter. My ideas have had an impact, and that's because I write them. Yeah, I said, Dr. Leap, I cannot thank you enough for your time and for your insights. What I would like to do in the remaining minutes that we have is for you to share with the audience how they can get a hold of your reading. I know you had mentioned the Golden Rule Revisited. That's on edwardleap.com. But there's quite a few outlets through which you write. And I would like for you to take a few moments to just share those outlets so that those listening can read your work. Great. Thank you. So you can find my work at Emergency Medicine News, which is a Lipkin Cop publication. It's online. I think it's em.com. I can't remember the actual web address. I apologize. No worries. I'll put the URLs all at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. So Emergency Medicine News. And if you look under the collections, it'll have Life in Emergistan. And that's my that's a collection of my columns for years now. Before it was that titled that, it was actually titled Second Opinion. So that's been around. This is I started writing for them in 2000. So we're 22 years now. A lot of stuff there. Well, it's not all online, but a lot of it is. The Greenville News, Greenville, South Carolina, if you search my name, still has quite a lot of my columns there. On, online. I think you can look them up online. You may have, there may be a way, there should be a way to do it without a subscription, but I could be wrong. MedPage Today is also a place that has columns of mine. I write a column there called Rural Prescription or Rural RX. Mm. And actually MedPage Today has also been linking to reposting some of my uh, Substack columns. So that's interesting. And if you look there under Rural RX, you can find it. I have been writing for many years a health column, oddly enough, which for the South Carolina Baptist Courier, and it's called Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, Healthy. And you can find those there under Holy Healthy, and that's, that's free to search. And that's the, they, people like for me to write about little health tips. And oddly enough, that's probably my least favorite thing to write about, <laughs> but I can do it easily. And it helps people I write about things like getting, why vaccinations matter, why it's important to watch for tick bites in the summer, make sure you, don't, you check your house for carbon monoxide, things like that people really enjoy reading. And if you go to Kevin MD, Kevin Foe, Dr. Kevin Foe of Kevin MD has a large archive of my columns that have been printed there for years and years. And so there's a lot there. Those are probably the most common places you can find things I've written. And, and on my website, which is edwinleap.com and my Substack, I have archives and they're searchable. You're, you can look for links to other columns and other places there. Quite a lot of different directions that where it's at. And probably someday I should put it all together as one big archive. It's just a, a matter of doing the work of, do, of making that happen. No, certainly. We'll do our best on the podcast webpage. So I would encourage all of you who are listening, who want to read an excellent physician writer, or who are interested in the art of medical writing, please take a look at Dr. Leap's work. It's worth the while. Thank you so much. By the way, if somebody wants to talk about writing, wants advice, tips, I'm happy to do that uh, anytime. Yeah. How can they get a hold of you? You can reach me on Substack, or they could just reach me by leaving a message on the blog, uh, and I can respond to there. Perfect. And with that, Dr. Leap, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful. I appreciate it.